T minus 10, 9, 8, 7. And we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. We've got some really interesting stories coming to you because um, we are talking, well it will be pretty much all about space related stuff. Just a reminder, everything at the beginning of the month uh, is space related, towards the end of the month is pretty much everything else anything towards the world of geekdom and uh, sci-fi and comic books and you name it it's in there but i'm i'm not alone this evening because as always i have my partner in crime from across the pond i have john Berger. how you doing sir what do you want human <laughs> i had to do something other than cockney <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, I could see a pattern form in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to break that, you know. <laughs> so what's Gollum next month? How's that? Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> so what's new with you? Just trying to lose the weight I gained from Thanksgiving over here. And, uh, you know, allow me to formally apologize to those of you over in the UK. It appears that we have regrettably exported that absolute disaster and and shameful thing that we have over here called Black Friday. <laughs> you, well, you haven't just exported Black Friday. Uh, no, uh, but it's one of the many shameful things you <laughs> unfortunately exported over there. Black Friday is now kind of uh, mutated into Black Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Well, Sunday. okay, I mean, everybody's um, kind It's of got ten, that, ten days of Black th- Friday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And, and Cyber pretty Monday. much the sales are just just as bad as they normally are throughout the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you really, 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 really want that $300 bargain basement TV that's going to break in six months just because you want to say that you bought it. Yeah, I know the ones you mean. Last year was where we were having trouble in the UK uh, on Black Friday, and a lot of the shops uh, didn't actually do it again this year <laughs> because of that reason they left it to the online retailers. Yeah. The ones that did actually take it on this year were very quiet. Very quiet. Yeah, we had a little bit of a rebellion over here because a bunch of people were getting sick and tired of saying, hey, stores are now opening on Thanksgiving, like late on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a backlash that saying, "Uh, will you let your employees actually enjoy the day, please? So that that was actually nice to see. It used to be a time when it actually meant something and you get something really super good price if you were there early enough in the morning before it all ran out. But now it's just like, whatever. Do you know, one of the best places... I used to go to for my January sales bargains was Woolworths. Oh, wow. I used to get my Atari 2600 cartridges at a really good price. <laughs> Woolworths has long since gone from the States. It has here as well. Uh, we, we, we did it. It folded up in 2009. They went into administration. Mm. And uh, they are now, well, they could be all kinds of stores, really. But a lot of them were uh, transformed into um, Poundland. <laughs> Which is, well, says what it does, really. It's everything for a pound. <laughs> hey, they were known as five and dimes over here because everything was either five cents or ten cents. Yeah. They were the ones that started that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that store. Well, I've heard of it on um, on, on different TV shows, sitcoms and things. <laughs> so it's like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, I've been into a dollar store in, in the States, and I'm forgetting that you have to add the tax on. 
afterwards. <laughs> Not in all states. It depends on the state. That's a, that's a state by state case. If Delaware has no sales tax, I don't think Texas. I don't think they have a sales tax. So it depends on where you go. Right. Shall we uh, get this show kicked off then, John? Oh, sure. Why not? Or as Aid sound Monty Python. Enough of this gay banter. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. A large chunk of an American space rocket has been found in the sea off the Isles of Scilly. Now, that's S-C-I-L-L-Y for anybody who doesn't know. Um, And uh, a lot of people don't actually realise where the Isle of Scilly is. A lot of people think it's one of these little islands off of Scotland, but it's not. It's it's off off of Cornwall, which is on the, uh, the southwest coast of the United Kingdom. Now, the section of the spacecraft is measuring about 10 metres or 32 feet by 4 metres or 13 feet and was spotted on the surface between Briar and, and Tresco. Coast guards believe it's from the unmanned SpaceX Falcon 9 that exploded after takeoff oh, wow. in June. However, astronomers believe it's from a different mission due to the size and the markings on it. I mean, unless they think it actually floated all the way over there in such a short amount of time. Local boatmen towed the section to Tresco, where it has now been removed from the beach. Joseph Thomas from Tresco Boating Services found the section of the rocket while travelling around the north of the island. He said, there are lots of gulls on the water, and I thought initially it was a dead whale, uh, and the birds were feeding off of it. Mr. Thomas found the debris, which was covered in goose barnacles. I didn't know what it was. We tried to drag it ashore using a hook, but it bent the hook. Uh, (laughs) First thoughts that it was part of a plane, and then we scraped the barnacles off, and we saw it was part of a rocket. But it's not everyday you see part of a rocket that washes ashore in the UK. However, Jonathan McDowell, an astronomer at Harvard Smithsonian Center of Astrophysics, said that many experts believe due to the size of the piece and the markings is from a different mission altogether. All the geeks have been putting it together. This is these actual, actual words, by the way. All the geeks <laughs> have been put getting together and looking at the fine details. And we're pretty sure it's from a launch from September 2014 that successfully sent a cargo mission into the space station. It didn't look like an exploded rocket to me. It looked like a fairly normal piece of space junk uh, when the lower stage of a rocket falls from 100 miles up and hits the ocean. Large sections can remain intact and it's quite normal, he said. Cornwall-based Michelin star chef Nathan Outlaw tweeted, Look at all those goose barnacles. How much do you want for them? (laughs) That is definitely a Falcon 9 piece. Yeah. Now, the thing is... If it was that close to the shore, was it because it landed and stayed there or because it floated for a while and sank? Because that's really kind of close to inhabited areas. Um, I'm thinking it sank um, because of the amount of barnacles that were on it. It looks like it's been underwater for some time. Huh. SpaceX declined to comment on the discovery, but several commenters on Reddit said it's unlikely the debris came from the Falcon 9 rocket that disintegrated. That was pretty much shredded in the explosion. Uh, there wasn't much left of that. Not big chunks of rocket like. Well, not that. Just that, but I mean, it would. It that meant that it would have floated 
on the ocean in, in just a few months? That many thousands of miles? No. It's, it does look more likely to be from September of last year. Still, that is, I mean, for me, that'd be, if I lived on there, I'd be like, wait a minute, that thing wasn't too far out from shore. What if that actually hit land? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why SpaceX isn't commenting on it. Possibly. But it's, it's a quite a good find, though. It's still cool. I, I Hey, I would put that upright in my front yard, no problem. I can see that ending up in a pub somewhere, you know. There you go. On the wall <laughs> in a pub. <laughs> that would be a very neat find. I'm going to do my best to not use the word cool so much this time around. (laughs) Yankee that I am, though. Back to Pluto. Have you seen the photos that they released the other day? Is this the one? Holy cow. It's got the big strip taken out of it. Yes, that that really long strip. But the resolution on that is staggering. They, they said flat out, we are not going to get clearer pictures than this until they send up another probe. Even at that, these photos are absolutely amazing. Uh, these, the, How do they say here? Um, it was the closest approach with resolutions of about 250 feet per pixel. And even at then, you could see these, these fantastic mountain ranges, which just go right into... The, you know that smooth area these are amazing to look at mm-hmm. i'm gonna have to find the the video capture that they've made of it because that's really mm-hmm. good because it shows you actually zooming right in doesn't it and um showing you the the actual scale of how big this area was that it covered yeah it's just fantastic to see i mean i mean this is one of those things where being an audio podcast we're just gonna have to say go to the show notes but I mean, the, the the quality of the resolution is remarkable. You can see just you know, these small ripples and so forth in the the smoother surface areas, uh, with a couple of you know what look like crater pits every now and then. I, don't, I doubt they're craters though. Uh, some might be, but others just might be where the the ground has collapsed. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just staggering. And they said that they released them in natural color, so the way you see it is the way it actually is. Oh wow! Yeah, these are just amazing the, the quality of these really sad to know that you know, even if they do send up another probe it's going to take another 10 years maybe <laughs> yeah well you never know with the way engines are are as, as moving we, along we mentioned maybe, in maybe. Our, our last um space related show we well, i think we mentioned three types of propulsion in one show mm-hmm. so yeah really who, who knows <laughs> so yeah so the images were taken from a range of just about ten thousand miles from the surface but I mean, they actually just took multiple photos instead of just point and click. So it snapped pictures every three seconds, and then they made this really impressive mural of all of the pictures that it took. And it's it's amazing to watch. Private companies can now mine asteroids after Barack Obama signs a major law that reverses decades of space law. U.S. citizens are now able to obtain their own asteroids and mine resources out of them and will be able to own materials they find there. Until now, space has been largely treated as publicly owned, meaning that nobody could claim commercial ownership of anything that was out there. The US government has now thrown out that understanding so that they can get rid of any, and I'll do this in quote marks, unnecessary regulations and make it easier for private American companies to explore space resources commercially. While mm-hmm. people don't actually, won't actually able to claim the rock or celestial body itself, they will be able to keep everything they find on it. 
it is hoped that the new rules will allow people to harvest the often vast amounts of expensive resources that are inside the asteroids fly near the planet. In July, a rock with a platinum core that passed by was worth three and a half trillion pounds. The new law is called the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act. (laughs) As well as giving the right to mine asteroids, it extends America's commitment to the International Space Station and it makes it easier to run a private space startup company. It also requires that U.S. authorities specify the way that the asteroid mining will be regulated and organized. Planetary Resources, who I've mentioned before, is an American company uh, that intends to make money by mining asteroids. This is the one that was partly funded by James Cameron. And they said that the new law was the single greatest recognition of property rights in history and that it establishes the same supportive framework that created the great economies of history and will encourage the sustained development of space. And if China or Russia say, hey, if one of our people land on that asteroid, we're claiming it, then what are they going to do? Yeah, I can see there being problems with that. Mm -hmm. Not that Russia or China would ever do something like that out of spite, mind you. No, 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 no. But it's a good thing in a way. I can see why, why it's being done. Um, yeah. It does clear the way for agencies such as NASA, ESA, whatever, to um, concentrate on other things. But as I say, James Cameron has been working on this for a long time. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's put a lot of finances into this. So he's, he's looking for, for his comeback. I guess if there are certain minerals that are just really becoming short, in, in short supply down here, that's fine. Otherwise, I really don't see the purpose of going to another asteroid except to learn from it and see what it's made out of. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't sound like what they're trying to do if they're trying to mine it. There may be some new elements on, um, in, uh, maybe. that we don't have, uh, which could be a source of fuel. I guess, I guess. But there's also this big thing in the sky that could produce a whole ton of energy for us if people would allow it to happen. If they do it properly, yeah. That, that's another... You know, or, you know, if people would stop being afraid of nuclear reactors... But, I mean, you know, that, that's a different topic. Th- this is the thing here: is is we are an island surrounded by water, and they won't take on hydropower. What? It seems really dumb. I thought. Well, I mean, I thought Scotland had one of the first hydropower plants up there. Yeah, but it's not mainstream. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It's only in small areas, and when we are surrounded by water. Yeah. <laughs> Why won't they? I think they were making too much money at the time out of fossil fuels, to be honest. Oh, gotta love that short-sighted stuff. As much as I don't really like segues, this actually was a good one, because it turns out that the uh, U.S. is going to start making nuclear fuel again for deep space missions. That's one of the things that's been keeping New Horizons nice and warm and so forth. It's got plutonium-238 in there. And that's what's powering the equipment. That's what's keeping the temperature regulated and so forth. But the problem is because plutonium-238 was basically a byproduct of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons and so forth. Well, once all that stopped, then all of a sudden plutonium-238, everybody's like, "Uh, guys, we're pretty much running out of this. And we've got a lot of deep space missions that we want to do. Well, the U.S. Department of Energy has announced that they are going to start producing small quantities of plutonium-238 in Idaho and Tennessee. And this is going to be the first time in 30 years that plutonium-238 is going to be created. I mean, it doesn't occur in nature. It has to be actually manufactured. But what's good about it is that it provides a constant level of heat for decades. 
while the fuel decays. So right now there are over two dozen space missions currently out there. They can't use solar because like New Horizons. Mm -hmm. I can't use solar. You know, that's got to have another internal source of heat. And that's pretty much what they're going to be doing, which is actually good news because I want to say earlier this year that there were some concerns coming out about, hey, uh, we have no nuclear fuel for, or we're running out of nuclear fuel for future missions. Well, not anymore. So it says uh, one pound of it costs about $4 million to make, uh, not including the upfront investment. The the cynical part of me says, well, if you didn't shut it down in the first place, but the thing is, because it was a byproduct of making nuclear weapons, okay, then I can understand why they kind of ran out of the supply. But then you, so, could, you could turn around and say that the space industry in its entirety is a byproduct of missiles because the oh, only yeah. ones were ballistic missiles. Sure. Oh, sure. No, no, I'm not arguing <laughs> that. But uh, still, I mean, the fact that, you know, all, all of our deep space missions required this material and suddenly it's like, oh, we're, we're not making man- nuclear weapons anymore. Sorry, we're shutting it down. Whereas it should have been, so now it's going to cost them about $150 million to get everything started again. Well, you know, had you just kept this going on, then it might not have been an issue. But, you know, so so anyway, that whole potential crisis has been averted. So now it looks like they're making this specifically for deep space missions. So, assuming that Congress will actually, you know, fund more deep space missions, then uh, they will have plenty of plutonium-238 to get the, the uh, spacecraft out there. This is strange, because this is going to be another segue coming up here. <laughs> okay. Hey, we're good, folks. We're good. We just don't know it. You heard the uh, the, the recent uh, 2015 Paris Climate Conference, or the COP21, well, during that conference, the Association of Space Explorers reached out to their fellow astronauts to pass on a simple message of solidarity, hope and collaboration to combat climate change and reach our political leaders during a, this crucial time. Their answer was a video which featured 18 astronauts from around the world, including Ernest Messerschmitt, from Germany, Suuchi Noguchi from Japan, you had uh, Ron Garan and Nicole Stott from the US, plus the current ISS crew members Scott Kelly and Kiel Lindgren and also you had from the Skylab crew, Jerry Carr you had India's first citizen in space, uh, Rakesh uh, Sharma, Spain's first citizen in space, Pedro Duque Netherlands first Dutch citizen in space uh, Wubu Eccles who unfortunately passed away the day after the video was shot. Mm. Um, I'll I'll put the video in the show notes because it was eight minutes long, but I do urge you all to watch it because I found it really emotional, especially when I found out that uh, Wubo uh, Eccles had died after making the the video. Uh, But to see all these different astronauts together in one video saying, look, we need to do something... You know, we've seen how thin that little layer around the Earth is becoming. Um, something's got to be done. It's quite yeah, hard. yeah, it does. Unfortunately, you know, it's where's the money? Uh, yeah, that's uh, what it all comes down to, as far as governments are concerned. Well, and you know, private industry. Yeah, I mean, I was unless it's a company that is genuinely a non-profit, then we're we're probably not going to see anything. Uh, on a mass scale anytime soon. I, I live pretty much in the Appalachian Mountains as they go through Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I'll go, you know, 
up and down the various highways and you know you'll see all of a sudden it's like oh wait a minute those big windmills on top of those mountains weren't there before i guess there's some investment but you know windmills have to be placed in very certain locations yeah and so forth whereas I, I would think that if you can just find a really, really hot area, like, we, wow, we have deserts here in America. I was going to say the Sahara, but, you know, <laughs> we've got deserts here, too. Just put a ton of solar panels. In the center of Australia would be a good one. There you go. <laughs> some in the Northern Hemisphere, some in the Southern Hemisphere for, you know, season changing and so forth. But it's, I'm just a dreamer, I guess. I mean, here in the UK, people complain that they don't like the look of these big wind turbine things. Okay? I think they've. I, I like. I think they've just got a grace and elegance to them that's just their own. But you see, the thing, hundreds of years ago in the UK, in certain areas that the, the east coast of the UK, the flatlands or Norfolk, as it's as it's called, um, used to have tons of proper old-fashioned style windmills for milling corn they're being disused they're this some of them are took, converted into houses why not make them look like these nice picturesque windmills like off a yeah. landscape and it would look beautiful i think so yeah and i mean if they i mean granted i'm not any kind of aerospace engineer or anything but i would think that if you make them look like the, having those big blades that's more surface area mm -hmm. to push them along yeah i, mean, I don't know those, those but, old windmills had the ability to turn so that you could that's true change the you know when the wind changed you can change it around well, i mean the new ones do too but. um but you could turn the whole the whole thing used to turn around so that would be annoying as a house it would be annoying as a house <laughs> and luckily the ones that are turned into houses have been locked down so i uh, hope so <laughs> well this is not where my front door was yesterday <laughs> is the sun rising or setting i don't know i fell asleep but i don't know what time it is <laughs> uh we're crazy <laughs> looks like Amazon is trying to catch up to SpaceX. Well, okay, not Amazon specifically, but Jeff Bezos is trying to with Blue Origin. Uh, they successfully launched and returned a new Shepard rocket and capsule after its blast-off. So the thing went up to almost 330,000 feet and then came down through crosswinds that were as high as 119 miles an hour. And it landed right on the pad. Now, it wasn't perfect. It was about four and a half feet off center. But still, they've got the whole unit back. Technically, all they have to do is just refuel it. I'm sure they have to do some conditioning otherwise, and then send it back up. I've seen the tweets about that, and there's the people saying, oh, yeah, we they beat SpaceX to it, blah, blah. No, <laughs> SpaceX a... already did that, what, five, six times beforehand? But the, the thing is, there is complete differences to what oh, yeah. SpaceX are trying to do and um, um, what Blue Origin are trying to do. Oh, no, 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 no. You cannot compare the two. I'm not saying anything bad about what they achieved. They achieved oh, something no, not really good. But, um, it, it, you know, they, they were on the edge of space, uh, which is what they intend to do because it's for the, the commercial market for taking uh, tourists into space, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Whereas the SpaceX rockets are going a lot higher than that. As we know, there's a lot more thrust difference between the two rockets. Well, just the shape of it. I mean, you've got the Blue Origin, which is, you know, shorter, fatter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's meant to go, and it's meant to stay in its in vertical position. It's a, you know? it's a single stage rocket it's for a single a start. stage. You know, and of course, the, the 
Falcon 9 is meant to go way off. It's much taller even and narrower, so it's like dropping a two-liter bottle and then having that land on its base and then dropping a copper pipe and then expecting that to land on its base. Yeah, yeah. good luck with that. The new Shepard, uh, Blue Origins new, new Shepard, generates about 110,000 pounds of thrust, and, that, and that's just the propulsive force to get the rocket just into space. The latest Falcon 9 version, by comparison, generates 1.3 million pounds of thrust. Yeah, slightly uh, different. <laughs> I mean, the benefits of, of the, the single-stage rocket is that it's smaller, as you say, it's lighter, it's cheaper to build, it's cheaper to launch, and less complicated to fly. Yeah, but it's a people carrier. That's you it. You know, whereas Falcon 9 is meant to be a, a big honking cargo carrier. And even, you know, just taking stuff even beyond. That's it. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're totally different. I mean, and, and not to mention the fact that SpaceX are trying to land it on a floating target. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, makes that. the difference as well. <laughs> it's not even that it's moving, but it's also got, you know, other coordinates that are being affected there. You know, the, the tilt and all of that. Mm -hmm. Don't really have that problem when it comes to the uh, Blue Origin ones. But, uh, but still, it's, yeah. it's still successful, though. Can't take that away from them, that's for sure. Nope. And the thing is, though, they did their usual thing and didn't tell anybody about it until after it happened. Yeah, that's just weird. I wonder why. <laughs> I guess because if something goes wrong, they don't have to tell anybody. <laughs> I just... That's probably some genius behind that somewhere. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. See, those of us who are really into this, okay, yeah, SpaceX failed twice. But our whole attitude is not, God, you failed twice, give it up. Our whole attitude is, you came so close, you can do it, you can do it. Just so I, don't know, I don't know why they're afraid of telling people. In the Twitter sphere, Elon Musk didn't, um, he, he congratulated him, it was kind of a backhanded compliment, and then he went straight in to say, yeah, but you're trying to do it different to us, and we're trying to do something a little bit more complicated than you. In, in fairness, Jeff Bezos came out and said something about how it was the, like the rarest of beasts, you know, to have a used rocket, and Elon Musk was like, yeah, well, you know, we already did suborbital flights three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it, it wasn't so much meant to be backhanded as much as just deflating a bit of an overinflated ego, I think. Uh, I think he does have that. Just a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love Amazon, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I've just been watching these latest videos for uh, the drone things that they're going on about. I think that is cool, though. I can, or, I can see someone shooting one of those down. That is a problem. Well, of course, then that person would then get in trouble for shooting someone else's personal property. But that, I mean, we've got a huge distribution facility from Amazon, maybe 20 miles from where I live. It's massive. You can see it off of, the, off of Interstate 81. That would be so cool to say, yeah, I want to order this and I want to pay the extra money, seeing as how they can't allow me to go down and get it, but I'll pay the extra money to have a drone drop it off at my front door. They reckon within... That would be kind of cool. <laughs> within 45 minutes, they reckon. Yeah. Mm. And that I would... that would I'd like that. Just to, just do it once, just to see it. You know, if it is something truly, oh my God, I need this, and it's on a Sunday, and and I forgot something for tomorrow. I forgot, I forgot our anniversary or something stupid like that. Have Amazon drop it off at my door in a half an hour? Well, the, I would love it. The, the commercial they're doing for it, Jeremy Clarkson now works for Amazon. Um, Are you serious? Uh, I did not it, know that. Yeah, he's on Amazon Prime. Oh, they will be next year. Oh, that's okay. Okay, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. At 160 million pounds or whatever it was they're getting for the shows. 
to make the shows. And he's doing a commercial for the, the Amazon drone thing, and the, the commercial works in, in this way. This is a story from the not-too-distant future. It's the day of your daughter Millie's big football match, and to be clear, that is the sort of football you play with your feet. Anyway, she is missing a vital piece of equipment, specifically a size 3 Puma Evo Power firm ground soccer shoe, the left one. And some of it, sadly, is in the family's three-year-old bulldog, Stuart. So now what? Well, you could yell angrily at the poor thing, but what's the point? Because all it will hear is blah, 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 Stuart, blah, blah, Stuart, blah. Much better to behave like a rational human being. Find your tablet and place an order with Amazon for a pair of Puma Evo Power Firm Ground soccer shoes and have them delivered in 30 minutes or less. And in a location not too far away, a miracle of modern technology is dispatched. It's an Amazon drone and after rising vertically like a helicopter to nearly 400 feet, this amazing hybrid design assumes a horizontal orientation and becomes a streamlined and fast airplane. In time, there'll be a whole family of Amazon drones, different designs for different environments. This one can fly for 15 miles and it knows what's happening around it. It uses sense and avoid technology to, well, sense and then avoid obstacles on the ground and in the air. Back at the house, you're getting a message on your tablet to say that your Prime Air delivery is arriving. And it goes back to vertical mode and scans the landing area for potential hazards. This amazing innovation then lowers itself slowly to the ground, drops off the package and flies straight back up to altitude. And moments later, you're walking through the door with a brand new pair of Puma Evo Power Firm Ground Soccer Shoes, size 3 for Millie, and a Nyla Bone Chicken Flavoured Durachoo for Naughty Naughty Stuart. And balance is, 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 is restored to the universe. There you go. That would be really neat. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got a whole bunch of uh, Federal Aviation Administration rules and so forth about that. and So now they're trying to get through the red tape for that. And I can understand that you've got a, a even if it's just a five-pound package, if it's flying up high enough that it can't be considered to be over somebody's personal property, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there is that limit, and it loses its functionality. So it's up 500, 600 feet, and all of a sudden one of its propellers dies. Yeah, I can see where there might be some liability there. Yeah. There could be a problem. I mean, I don't know if you saw the. Um, I know these things are not the the, the small things are not uh, drones, as we we keep saying they're they're um, uh, copters. Yep. They have them in TGI Fridays, where they <laughs> uh, take photographs of your party, <laughs> and and things. And uh, one of them went a bit wrong and caught somebody on the nose. The the the, the the blade actually caught someone on the nose. The latest promotional tactic from TGI Fridays is the mobile mistletoe. It's a drone with mistletoe and a camera attached that hovers over people just trying to enjoy their appetizer samplers to try to get them to kiss. If you kiss, you get a gift card. So what's the worst that could happen? You're at a table with co-workers or family members and you have to deal with the awkward situation of explaining to a flying drone why you don't want to smooch the dude from accounting or your Aunt Kathy. Or you could possibly get part of your face sliced off. 
Georgine Benvenuto, a photographer for Brooklyn Daily, was checking out the mistletoe drones in New York City when she says one of them hit her in the face, saying, it literally chipped off a tip of my nose. Benvenuto told ABC News the drone operator tried to land one on the hand of the reporter Benvenuto was with. When it landed, the reporter flinched, and that's when it apparently flew over to Benvenuto and cut her enough to draw blood. The drone operator claims it was an isolated incident, telling Time Magazine it never would have happened if the reporter hadn't flinched, adding, if people get hurt, they're going to come regardless. People get hurt in airplanes, they still fly. There's a risk involved. Anything flying, there's a risk. How did those blades not have guards on them? I have no idea. I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand that you have to have airflow, obviously. I got that that silly Millennium Falcon quadcopter, mm-hmm. and it once you get used to it, it flies really well. There is no way that could hit me in the nose because the whole thing is surrounded by this styrofoam Millennium Falcon. Mm-hmm. You would think that if you're doing that same sort of thing in a commercial business that's going to be crowded, you'd have a little bit more protection against those blades. You would have thought, wouldn't you? You would think. <laughs> NASA has recently launched a startup initiative which has allowed US startups to access and commercialize from over 1,200 patented technologies at no upfront cost. Soon, the space age technologies that appear ripped out of the pages of science fiction and initially intended for deep space exploration could make their way into our living rooms, reshaping our daily lives. NASA states that the intent behind the initiative is to enable US citizens to benefit from the technologies it has developed over the years. The space program's track record at changing human lives through technology is really impressive Uh, from LEDs to solar power advanced water filters frozen food uh, even CAT scans and cochlear implants originated from, from NASA technologies the initiative is called the technology transfer program which allows US based startup groups to receive non-exclusive licenses from patented technologies vetted for technical and commercial viability for no upfront costs once the company starts selling their product, NASA will collect a standard royalty fee. Since 2001, about 50 NASA inventions have found their way into our daily lives every year. And then you get the people out there who say, what has space ever done for us? <laughs> Sony this year launched the HTST7, a high-end soundbar that was developed using NASA's ferrofluid technology. The Sleep Genius app, available on most uh, major app stores, enables users to sleep better. It was developed by licensing NASA's technology that enables astronauts to deal with insomnia during missions. Huh. Neocortex, developed by Universal Robotics, is based on NASA's Robonaut and is reaching out to households as a domestic assistant. It's it's amazing. Uh, Another company produced a water bottle that when it's been squeezed forces purified water out of a special filter another invention that was used on the ISS all these things are being developed now somebody else can take the baton and carry it forward which means NASA can concentrate on other things well, I wish I had the ability to do that sort of thing but uh, and also make some money out of it too and make some money out of it yeah <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, though, too, because NASA is pretty much the U.S. government, which is paid for by public dollars. So all of that information should, in some way or another, be brought back to the public. This probably hasn't been pushed forward to public knowledge that much, and it really should do. Mm-hmm. And it might 
shut up people like Ted Cruz for one. But um, not possible. He's a politician. <laughs> I'm all for it. I mean, if it, if it means that other companies can develop things for, for the good of the people, sure. And I mean, my wife and I have one of those foam beds. NASA. Yeah, I see those water purifiers advertised all the time. It's amazing what is out there that is NASA, and it, it, I think it's going to come to a point where it's going to be what isn't. <laughs> well, you know what I'd really like to see? Any of those things that were were basically from NASA should have something like inspired by NASA on the product packaging. Then I'd really love to see the the people who are like, what has space exploration ever done for us? And we can just go to the product packaging and say this, 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 this. I mean, they do it with that as seen on TV, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? So as seen as seen on NASA or something, you know, something to that regard. That should be, that is, that is really something NASA should should make as a requirement, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think that would make people a lot more aware of the kind of stuff that they've done. I mean, there, there, there are um, papers that you can download from NASA websites. I'll have to try and find out where from. I have got one, um, and there's, oh, it's about 500 pages of things that have been painted or developed by NASA, right. and it's mind-blowing. <laughs> NASA has decided that it's time to debunk five myths about becoming an astronaut. <laughs> uh, I guess there's just so many people out there that have assumptions on it, they've decided to say, no, no, we'll, we'll give you some facts about becoming an astronaut. Well, the first one is that all astronauts have to have piloting experience. I mean, because they're always talking about how they were pilots before. No, uh, them are, though. I mean, if you're a mission specialist and you're just um, a scientist. I that's mean, true. I mean, yeah, I mean, they do make exceptions. You know, obviously, we think of Krista McAuliffe, who died in the Challenger explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't a pilot. But the facts are that you do not need to be a pilot to be an astronaut. Flying experience is beneficial, but it's not required. Uh, another one is that you have to have perfect vision. So, you know, you, you have to have 20-20 or to, to be able to do that but that was true but as of 2007 if you've had something like LASIK or PRK or one of those kinds of eye surgeries yeah you are now allowed to uh, be an astronaut as long as it's more than one year from the date of when you had that eye surgery oh yeah that could cause some problems yeah yeah you know I can yeah mm. but so now you know but now it's, it's not like well that's always been something for Air Force pilots I mean Chuck Yeager who was like one of the most well-known Air Force pilots over here, he had something like 2010 vision. So his eyesight was like twice as good as regular people. Mm-hmm. And he always kind of thought that, well, you know, you have to have really, really good vision to be an astronaut. And it used to be true, but now you you still can't wear corrective lenses, obviously, and it makes sense. But if you've had LASIK, you still qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is that all astronauts have to have advanced degrees. Nope. Uh, a bachelor's degree from an accredited university is necessary, but something like a PhD or a master's or whatever, not necessary. I mean, you, you see a lot of astronauts and they've got doctorates. To, to do some of the experiments and things out there, you pretty much need to be a scientist. Oh, yeah. So no, no, the no, chances no. are you're going to have uh, a pretty good diploma. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. But they're just saying that you don't need to be, which, you know, as, as long as you, you understand what they're doing, 
why do you have to have a degree that says yes you understand what they're doing there's there, i always look at that in when when i've worked at different places we've we've had people coming in from head office and they do things by the textbook because they only know the textbook because they're straight out of university um they've had no experience in the field whatsoever right. Uh, another myth that NASA wants to debunk is that astronauts are required to have military experience in order to be selected. Nope, you don't have to be part of the military at all in order to be an astronaut. Nope. And the last one that they want to debunk is you have to be a certain age in order to be an astronaut. And the fact is that there are no age restrictions. Astronaut candidates selected in the past have ranged between 26 and 46, with the average being 34. I think it depends on how long it takes you to get the qualifications you need. Basically. Sure, you know, and, and your your physical, what physical shape you're in. Uh, yeah, but let's true. face it, we, we all know people who are in their twenties who are way physically unfit compared to other people that we know who are in their forties and have, you know, muscles of steel. You look at John Glenn. I mean, he, what is he seventy something, and he went up in space again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so th- there you go. The five myths that NASA felt needed to be debunked in order to be an astronaut uh, the other thing i was wondering about was is there a height restriction because i mean it's, it's handy to be shorter oh, no they didn't say anything about i mean i can understand that one as well for a tall person i wouldn't imagine those seats are gonna be oh no wait here they actually do mention it they do mention it uh standing height between 62 and 75 inches so basically, if you're taller than six foot three inches, forget it. Yeah, that's going to be a bit cramped. Oh, yeah. Gwendolyn Christie probably is not going to want to be an astronaut. There are a lot of myths out there when it comes to space related um, stuff. I-, I can guarantee we can find lots of different lists that can be uh, busted. Oh, sure. <laughs> but, you know, hey, this is from NASA. Uh, understandably, I guess the excitement for, you know, getting up into space is building again thanks to spacex and Mm -hmm. and so forth so it makes sense that they'd want to debunk these sorts of things friday the 13th brought a little bit of bad luck to the international space station when a short in the 1b power channel led a partial power loss to one of the station's eight solar array wings on november the 16th however a, a nasa public affairs officer informed the press that the essential devices and systems run by that channel have now been redistributed and that the expedition 45 six-member crew are not in any danger whatsoever uh, any on-site repairs by Commander Kelly and his crew will have to wait until next year for delivery of electrical equipment via a resupply rocket. The cargo module of an upcoming shipment by Orbital uh, ATK was already packed for flight and any parts needed for the repairs could not be added. NASA expects to include the parts in the cargo resupply mission slated for delivery in early 2016 by SpaceX. So hopefully... Yeah, hopefully. uh, That'll be good to get SpaceX back in the fold again. Well, I mean, actually, interestingly, they're talking about a crew mission to the International Space Station. So they're actually talking about NASA is bringing SpaceX on board to get people up there. In the Dragon 2, yeah. Yeah, they, they realize, hey, we can help each other on this. So let's see, does it have any info here? Let's see. Let's see, it is really exciting to see SpaceX and Boeing with hardware in flow for their first crew rotation missions. It is important to have at least two healthy and robust capabilities from U.S. companies to deliver crew and critical scientific experiments from American soil to the space station throughout its lifespan. I'm just having a little bit of jingoism there. (laughs) But, you know, whatever. 
So uh, let's see. Determination of which company will fly its mission to the space station first will be made at a later time. So basically, SpaceX and Boeing have been brought on board to get people up to the space station. So they got a special name for their capsule, isn't it? Is it a Dreamliner or something like that? The Dreamliner? That's the oh, no, 787. Says, yeah, something like that. I'm a looking, I'm a looking. I think it's called the, the Starliner. Starliner, that's it. CST 100 Starliner. Starliner. It was just called the CST before, but now they've just decided, oh, let's give it a name. Well, you know, you got to market the thing now, so it has <laughs> to have a you know fancy name. Starliner. Just don't name the first one Titanic, okay? <laughs> I know, I'm terrible. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the Red Planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Tim Peake. I'm about to blast off into space. Watch the whole thing live on the BBC. mission to get children inspired by Tim Peake's journey into space is all systems go. Destination Space is about engaging uh, young people with the science of Tim's mission. Uh, it's about getting people thinking about the science, the technology, uh, the maths and the engineer that goes into it. This two-year government-funded programme will take place at 20 discovery centres across the UK. There'll also be school workshops and a special website. I didn't think that the hovercraft there could fly off the floor. I liked when we used um, the machines and tried to build the tower. They might need more people to help more astronauts go up to space. One of the aims of this project is to highlight the variety of jobs available within the space industry. It's hoped Tim Peake's mission won't just inspire the astronauts of tomorrow, but also the scientists, the software designers and the engineers. What do you want them to take away from Tim Peake's mission? I want them to take away the, the idea that actually be curious, be brave, uh, take risks. You know, if you've got a real passion, just follow it all the way through. For Tim Peake, the journey of a lifetime awaits. Far below him, so too does an incredible learning opportunity. Last 
blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. I love my Hubble. That thing is just amazing. And and seeing some of the images that thing brings back is just fantastic. But groundbreaking has taken place in Chile for a new telescope system called the Giant Magellan Telescope. And it's actually going to be used to hunt for signs of life. But the thing with this is, this thing, when it's finished, will consist of seven mirrors. Each one is... 27.6 or 8.4 meters wide. This thing is going to be a monster. Yeah, sounds it. Like- so it's going to be the largest single piece of astronomical mirrors ever made. The whole thing, when it's done, is going to have a reflective surface of 80 feet or 24 meters across. <laughs> and that doesn't include the seven smaller mirrors that will be used to you know, counteract blurring effects and, and that sort of thing. So they claim that this thing will have 10 times the resolution of the Hubble. Wow. And especially when you think about, it has to go through, now granted, it's way up in the, the Andes Mountains. So there's going to be like no light pollution whatsoever. But still, it's still going to have to get light coming through the atmosphere and it's still going to have that much more clarity than the Hubble. So four of the mirrors have already been cast at the the University of Arizona. They expect them to be fully polished and delivered by 2021. So they expect the whole thing to be finished around 2024. That's not that far away when you think about it. It's not, really. It's not. But just the fact that, you know, look at what we get from Hubble. Mm -hmm. And now here's something that's going to be 10 times the resolution of the Hubble from the ground. I really want to see the results of that. That's impressive, isn't it? Talking of Hubble, I don't know if you know this, John, but um, we've got a a group of islands um, in between us and and France called the Channel Islands, uh, which consists of Jersey, Guernsey, and I think Sark is the other one. uh, They're part of Great Britain, but they're not. They're quite a long way from us. Uh, It's a bit like some of the territories that you have that are away from. Now, Jersey Post Office, this will interest you, have issued a set of stamps which all have images from the Hubble telescope on them. Nice. For the 25th uh, anniversary. So, yeah, I'll have to get the... uh, the website and, and put it in the show notes um, and probably get it over to you as well so you can have a look at those <laughs> uh, I think there's six stamps in the set and they're all different um, images that the Hubble telescope has produced I got the Star Wars stamps and we actually had to, I, ha- I have it I haven't framed it or anything but many years ago the U.S. Post Office had a set of stamps dedicated to Star Wars, and I got one that's already matted and so forth that's just strictly dedicated to R2-D2. All right, cool. Ha, I got you saying cool now. <laughs> <laughs> SpaceX has done a test firing of its Super Draco, which is the, uh, it's, that's going to be like the emergency evacuation rocket. Yes. If there's a crew. They, they've released a series of nine photos showing that thing being ignited, you know, just a test ignition. Mm-hmm. And that thing is really impressive. They are powerful. 120,000 pounds of axial thrust to carry the astronauts away to safety. The things that go through my head is, okay, so 
it has to react quickly, which means 120,000 pounds of thrust. I don't know that I want to even think of the G-forces on the astronauts when that thing takes off. I mean, these guys are tested to something eight times. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. So, yeah, I I don't think I I could take that. (laughs) No, uh, uh, that's just, I mean, granted, they've test-fired these things so many times already. Mm -hmm. But just the way that they put this little montage of nine photos together... At, at the different stages of the burn. Maybe it's just the American in me who likes explosions. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it's just Americans. I don't think so. I love watching explosions just as well. Um. <laughs> but yeah, but just to, just to look at this image and to think, those things are generating 120,000 pounds of thrust. It is just mind-blowing. It is pretty rapid, isn't it? Whilst we're on the subject of uh, the Super Dracos, Aerojet Rocket Dime has completed 12 additively manufactured production nozzle extensions for use aboard the Orion spacecraft. Now, I'm using the term additively manufactured, which is apparently the correct terminology for 3D printed. Nice. <laughs> what, what, what do they call it? Additively manufactured. Okay, I see where they come up with that. It's still screams of market speak. Yeah, it does a bit, doesn't it? Corporate nonsense. <laughs> the the nozzle extensions are part of the Orion's crew module reaction control system that Aerojet Rocket Dime is building for Lockheed Martin and NASA. The 12 nozzles were produced on a single additive manufacturing machine, or a 3D printer, yep. in... <laughs> <laughs> In just three weeks, uh, which represents roughly 40% reduction in the production time when compared with using conventional manufacturing techniques. The company will next conduct a series of inspections and hot fire tests to qualify the components for use uh, aboard Orion's Exploration Mission 1 flight test, which is scheduled for 2018. The reaction control system provides the Orion crew module with the ability to control its course after it has separated from the service module. Additionally, during Orion's re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, it ensures that the heat shield is properly orientated and the crew module is stable under the parachutes and that the vehicle is in the correct orientation for splashdown. So it is a quite a crucial piece of equipment. I still can't believe we're going back to that method of getting people up in space, though. But part of me is actually really disappointed by that. What, the capsule situation? Yeah, going back to the whole capsules. You know, it's like, really? Are we, we back in the 1960s and 1970s? Well, granted, it, it, it worked. That's fine. I get it. But the, the I don't know. It still just feels like a step back. The aerodynamics of those, though, it's just a perfect shape. It is. You know, I, that's why I said I, I get it. It just feels like a step back. What can you do? <laughs> if that's what's needed for us to get back in space, mm-hmm. so be it. Really I still is. miss my space shuttles. I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, there's something special about the way they looked. I mean, I know they handled like a brick, but... Yep. Um, and they were expensive, I know. And it's the same... I guess part of it is just that NASA got rid of... Well, I guess Congress got rid of them, you know, before we had a replacement. So it's like, really? Mm-hmm. Really? And yet they're coming up with ideas for shuttles as well. There's, there's still shuttles on the drawing board. Yep. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's yeah, I mean, well, granted, strange. a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. But... And hopefully don't take off, you know, hopefully they're not meant to be launched on, you know, a, a, attached to a gigantic explosive device. Well, like I say, if they're going to do it that way, put it on top of it. 
put the yep. shuttle on top of it don't put it alongside it that was the biggest mistake they ever made was putting it alongside the actual oh, yeah. fuel and the rockets and the, it's like you know this is going to happen one day um, and Columbia it did mm-hmm. just got to see how these things pan out really haven't we I mean the, the, the first test of the, the Orion capsule was just, uh, apart from the um, the airbags didn't inflate properly, apart from that, it was a perfect yeah. launch. really was. Well, like I said, as long as it gets us up there, that's all that counts. Because the, the worst thing to do is for us to stop trying to get back up there. A stunning video from a private U.S. spaceflight corporation shows a space mission in detail, including the ascent of a, a launch vehicle, booster separation at 75 miles above the ground, and the landing of a space capsule with a parachute. They did the whole thing on four GoPro Hero 4 video cameras. Nice. Which were attached to the launch vehicle, recording the entire event from start to finish in high definition nice. at 120 frames per second wow <laughs> could you imagine what, what they need to do then like the next step get it so that more and granted I mean, the aerodynamics of this might be an issue more like a sphere so that they can merge all of that into virtual reality that would be good so that as the thing is going up and doing whatever you can actually just be looking around and, and, and getting so that good. perspective um, now the company that launched the rocket is, is called Up Aerospace Oh, Pixar's going to sue him. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, and they're a company that offers low-cost space access and payload transportation. The cameras attached to the rocket showed it soaring upwards. Uh, a nose-faring camera then captured the booster separation I- in space and ejecting the, they call it the Mariah Earth Return Capsule. A camera m- mounted in the launch vehicle shows the capsule after ejection flying back towards the surface of Earth. And the suborbital space rocket reached the altitude of approximately seven miles or 120 kilometers after descent the experiments were recovered intact some 30 miles from the launch site Uh, the footage looks like something out of a Hollywood blockbuster and it was carried out on November the 6th Uh, the rocket was launched from the Space America site in New Mexico and carried out four technology experiments for NASA's flight opportunities program that funded the, the launch of these technologies which is really cool. So oh, I'll, neat. So it wasn't just for the video. No, they, they were oh, carrying cool. out some experiments as well whilst it went up. I'll put the actual video up on the show notes because it is available. And uh, also links to Up Aerospace because I've never heard of them. <laughs> no, I've never heard of them either. <laughs> I mean, I guess it also is a testament to those GoPro cameras because they seem to be the uh, go-to choice yeah. for when it comes to stuff like this. Well, they use them up on the space station, don't they, for uh, when they're doing spacewalks? I guess if they're solid state it kind of makes sense at a press conference on december the 3rd in san antonio texas richard branson announced virgin galactic had purchased a boeing 747 to be the new mothership for the orbital launcher one rocket the plane named cosmic girl came from Virgin Atlantic's fleet, so it didn't cost them anything. (laughs) Branson said, I'm absolutely thrilled that Cosmic Girl can stay in the Virgin family and truly live up to her name. That's what she was called at Virgin Atlantic. It wasn't a name they've made for Virgin 
Galactic. The new mothership allows for Launcher 1 to take even larger satellites into orbit, and this is what the uh, company update said. Due to high levels of demand for both Spaceship 2 human space flights and Launcher 1 small satellite missions, Virgin Galactic has decided to have a specifically dedicated carrier aircraft for each program. With that decision made, it came possible to select an aircraft for the Launcher 1 business. Cosmic Girl went into service in 2001 and will spend her new life as an aerial platform for Launcher 1, facilitating a new generation of small satellites that will help us in our mission to open space up for benefit of life on Earth. Now, whilst we're talking of Virgin Galactic, Virgin Galactic have also announced the appointment of its newest pilot. Kelly Latimer, a former combat veteran and retired US Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. She joins Virgin Galactic with extensive experience with heavy aircraft and as an experimental test pilot for NASA, Boeing and the US Air Force. Now, a lot of people out there don't realise there are female combat pilots out there. If you see this woman's resume, or CV as we call it over here, she was the first female research test pilot hired by NASA's Dryden, now called um, Armstrong Flight Research Centre, where she conducted experimental flight tests and test support on the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA. She's flown 747SPs, T-38, C-17s, the 747 shuttle carrier aircraft, BE-200s and T-34s. Good Lord. For various NASA research projects. She's personally flown 90 combat sorties and she's flown 130 plus combat hours in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Before joining Virgin Galactic, she held the positions at Boeing where she was a key team member on system development, aircraft design, engineering and certification and conducted the very first flights of the Boeing's KC-446-767s. She graduated with honours and distinction with a bachelor's degree in astronautic engineering from the United States Air Force Academy, and then she got a master's degree in aeronautics from the George Washington University. Now that is an impressive career. That, that's a very humbling resume. Just a little bit. <laughs> very, very humbling. Wow. Um, and this just goes along with the pattern of what we have been saying all along since we've started the podcast uh, about women in engineering and, yep. and space and science and everything that goes along with it. It's just amazing to see what she has done in her career. Speaking of that sort of thing, did you hear about IBM's little faux pas? No. This is something that they actually posted a couple of months ago, but it just gained traction like yesterday or the day before. They decided you know, to, to try to get women and girls in, interested in STEM and so forth. IBM had this thing out there about you know hacking various devices and so forth, and they decided that one of the devices that women would be interested in hacking is a hair dryer. Seriously? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's like of all of the things I mean their whole and I get where they were going with it you know just take a basic household item that just about anybody would have and just do something different with it I get that but really of all of the things that are available in a regular house they had to choose a beauty product oops they took responsibility for it and you know 
they apologized and, and so forth. Really quickly, actually, too. But still, it's just a hair dryer. I can think of some really <laughs> cool things you could do with a hair dryer, but it's not the point. Well, I think it was the London Fire Brigade. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was the London Fire Brigade that said that, yeah, you know, really nobody... Sh- as much We're not going to get into the sexism of the thing, but nobody... Sh- and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but nobody really should go hacking a hairdryer. Well, it is quite dangerous, yeah. Yes, it is. It's only a massive heat element, you know, but still, it's one of those facepalm moments. Over the last few days, two spacecraft have been launched which have a major significance to the UK. On the 2nd of December, the laser, here we go, interferometer space antenna or LISA Pathfinder was launched from Ariane Space's launch facility in French Guiana on board a Vega rocket. I'm going to play you uh, a little piece uh, to let you know what the LISA Pathfinder mission was all about. ESA's mission, LISA Pathfinder, will take us one step closer to being able to directly check the arguably most famous scientific theory posed, Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. One of the predictions of this theory are gravitational waves, the universe's mechanism for transmitting information about the weakest of the fundamental forces, gravity. LISA Pathfinder will test the extremely precise technology required to measure gravitational waves and thereby is the first step in opening a new window into the gravitational universe. So much of the science and technology around us today is based on how gravity, the fundamental force of our universe, works. But the gravitational waves of Einstein's theory have never been directly detected. What makes these detections so difficult is that the effect of the passage of a gravitational wave is so subtle that it requires an incredibly large and sensitive detector to measure it. The general theory of relativity predicts what we expect to see from gravitational waves in terms of the ripples in space-time. And for a very large signal, that would be two galaxies merging, the supermassive black hole, the centre of a galaxy is really crashing together, and then we have to measure picometers changes in the arm, one picometer being roughly one hundredth the size of an atom. This is very difficult uh, and it's not believed that it's even possible. These measurements are only possible with a very large detector like the one here called GEO 600. It has two 600 meter long laser arms housed in vacuum tubes that run at right angles to each other along fields just south of Hanover, Germany. A gravitational wave of sufficient amplitude would make the two beams go out of phase by a tiny but measurable amount. By recording this phase change, scientists can determine the properties of the gravitation wave signature and hence the astrophysics of the celestial body which produce the waves. However, so far gravitational waves have not been directly detected. So far we haven't found anything but any minute now a star could explode and then we would see a signal. The difficulty of measuring gravitational waves from ground-based detectors is that major astronomical events, which are observable from Earth, are rare, and when they do happen, the distortion created by the Earth itself can mask the signal. This has driven the desire for a lower-frequency space-based detector where the signals are plentiful and the detector is free from Earth-induced noise. Gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time. In order to measure these ripples, we have to build detectors which are only susceptible to the gravity of space. 
So we have to remove all the other forces like thermal forces, solar radiation pressure, magnetic forces. So Lisa Pathfinder will be sent to a stable orbit 1.5 million kilometers from Earth towards the Sun, known as the first Sun-Earth Lagrange point. However, another problem is how to avoid distortion to the measurements of this incredibly precise but sensitive detector from the engine and workings of the spacecraft itself. Now the spacecraft itself has a bigger effect than what we're trying to measure. So the real challenge of gravitational wave measurements and Lisa Pathfinder are how to build a spacecraft which isolates the test mass from everything else. The test masses, in the case of Lisa Pathfinder, are two solid gold platinum cubes that float in near-perfect gravitational freefall, enveloped and protected within the heart of the spacecraft, their tiniest movements being measured and relayed back to us here on Earth. Lisa Pathfinder is a pure technological experiment to show whether it's possible to create a detector in space of such sensitivity and accuracy that it can measure these waves that are passing through us all the time without us consciously noticing them. After the successful demonstration of the technology, ESA plans a much bigger mission involving three spacecraft flying in formation linked by lasers. After we do Lisa Pathfinder, we then take Essentially, two or three Lisa Pathfinder spacecraft. We separate them by five million kilometers. We have one cube in each spacecraft, and we measure the distance between the cubes. So the Lisa Pathfinder mission was instigated by ESA to actually test if we can ever make the measurement. And as of today, we believe we can do that. Lisa Pathfinder isn't just about proving Einstein's theory a hundred years after it was first proposed, but the very precise technology developed for this mission and the ability to detect gravitational waves can potentially open up a new and yet unobserved dimension of our universe. Now, you can see why I wanted to play a piece in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's rather complicated. Yeah, I was reading up on that while she was talking, and that's just... Just the precision needed for that is wow. The other thing I saw in there that was kind of disheartening was that it's not expected to even launch until until 2032. That is a long way off. This this is the forerunner to it, really, to find out whether it would be worth actually launching it. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I'm just thinking of the precision needed for that, and that's just... I can feel my synapses (laughs) short-circuiting. Especially when he said how far apart each one would have to be, so you have to keep them in perfect speed, perfect sync. Just wow. Now, I was also a bit worried that you might not understand what he was saying because they they had to choose someone with quite a broad Scottish accent. (laughs) I had no problem with it. Uh, Of course, I'm not like most Americans, though. (laughs) Now, Lisa Pathfinder was built by Airbus Defence and Space. Where I'm coming from with this, saying it was quite a a significant thing for the, the UK, is their facility where they actually built the craft was here in the UK actually about 14 miles down the road from where I am right now in a place called Stevenage and is is the home of Europe's largest indoor Mars landscape simulator which is affectionately known as the Mars Yard Um, it's about the size of a football field and is a place that I hope to visit for the podcast I'm trying to find contacts at uh, Airbus Defence and Space over in Stevenage mm. and uh, see if I can get over there. I've, I've been past there many times and I've just looked over thinking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
hoping and dreaming. <laughs> After four days of waiting on weather conditions to cooperate, Colorado-based United Launch Alliance got the fourth of Orbital ATK's Cygnus spacecraft, or OA-4, on its way to the International Space Station last night, actually. Yeah, finally. Yeah, just sitting there night after night going, oh, come on. Well, what, that that first one, they had like a 90% chance of no launch, and then the next day was like a, what, 70%? And it went down to of a no-go. Like, oh, really? And now, it it launched on an Atlas V 401 rocket. The The liftoff occurred at, a, at the very beginning of a, a roughly 30-minute launch window from Cape Canaveral's Air Force Station Space Launch Complex 41, or SLC 41, in Florida. <laughs> the mission was one of the most unique to take flight in 2015, from the historic launch site as it marked the first time that um, United Launch Alliance's Atlas booster had been brought into service for the commercial resupply services program. Orbital ATK selected the Atlas V due to its proven track record. The reason why I mention this launch as being significant to the UK is it's in connection with Tim Peake. Oh, okay, there we go. The the cargo module attached uh, contains the experiment projects set up for Tim Peake's Principia uh, mission and also the specially adapted Raspberry Pis called Astro Pis that Tim will be using to run the code that UK school kids have been programming for the mission. Here in the UK, we were going to hope <laughs> it launches right. I hope it goes right because we need that stuff up there before he gets there. I detect just a little bit of pride in the way the UK <laughs> is... Uh, contributing to these launches <laughs> there is a lot going on here i can tell you that as as you probably have guessed uh, we've got tim's launch coming up very soon on the mm-hmm. on the 15th of december he makes history as he launches into space embarking on his six-month mission to become britain's first european space agency astronaut and the first britain to serve a mission on the international space station the bbc's coverage is huge <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You guys have never launched an astronaut through ESA before? No. Really? No. The last time... That's kind of surprising, actually. We, we launched an astronaut in the 1990s uh, through the Russian Space Agency. That was the last astronaut we... Oh, cosmonaut we had we have had people like um, mike folds and um piers sellers but they both have american citizenship huh so they were born in england but um are american citizens so whenever they flew they were classed as americans well fair enough well, i was kind of surprised to hear that yeah, it is pretty surprising, isn't it? Now, the, the BBC's coverage includes a Horizon special. Horizon is a, a very good documentary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Stargazing live launch and docking shows and the Royal Institution's Christmas lectures. The BBC will be the home of all things Tim Peake in the coming months with programmes and activities covering the launch. <laughs> Tim's journey into space and regular updates and details of his time at the space station. These include Horizon Tim Peake special, How to Be an Astronaut, at 8pm on the 13th of December on BBC2. Narrated by Tim Peake, this Horizon special provides remarkable insight into the world of an astronaut, their hopes and fears, how they deal with the risk and the pressures they are under to do the right thing, uh, and and just how much of an honour it is to do it. It also features several NASA and ESA trainers, along with Tim's mission crew members, NASA astronaut Tim Copra and uh, 
I think it's Yuri Melanchenko. Both have flown before and both have had experience in spacewalks during the construction of the space station. Yuri even married in space in 2003. Aww. Horizon also has exclusive access to Tim's own video diaries at Star City in Moscow and it goes through all his training and everything else and the program also exclusively features Tim's wife Rebecca and their two sons as they prepare for six months without their husband and father. That'll be neat. Then you've got Blast Off Live, a stargazing uh, special on BBC One at 10.30am on launch day and the live docking show at 7pm on BBC Two. <laughs> where Professor Brian Cox, Dara O'Brien and special guests cover the launch and the docking. Dr. Kevin Fong presents the 2015 Royal Institution Christmas Lectures this year called How to Survive in Space, uh, which will be broadcast on BBC4 over the Christmas period. The three-part series will delve into how humans propel themselves in space, how our bodies adapt and change once they're there, and what lies in store for our future spacefaring endeavours. That sounds really interesting as well. And then in January... Agree. <laughs> you have Stargazing Live. It starts again. It's new. It's new series uh, over four nights, starting on the twelfth of January, which will heavily feature Tim's mission. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear this. <laughs> you also have CBBC. Blue Pizza news round covering the mission in depth with uh, special versions of um, Stargazing Live, but it's called Stargazing Returns, which is for CBBS, which is for very young viewers. So, mm-hmm. getting the real youngsters involved in space, Good. which is as awesome. it should be. I-, I really did not think he was your first, you know, real astronaut. Our first one was. Um, Helen Sharman, who was our first uh, cosmonaut. She was a um, a private cosmonaut, and I think she went up on Mir. I think she was on the Mir space station. So this is just your first one in a while. Yeah, uh, but he's the first one that has been funded by the UK Space Agency. Mm, uh, okay. Do you know, it's the first well, one. Well, then who, who funded hers to she, go up to Mir? She did. Oh, well, okay. Well, hey, Richard <laughs> Garriott can... <laughs> As far as I know, she did, yeah. I've actually got photographs of her um, flight suits and everything because it used to be at the National Space Centre. So it was interesting, you know, she's the first British person in space. And a a female. People shouldn't forget about her, that's for sure. Not traitorous British who went over to the American side of things, is that it? Uh, (laughs) One time it was the only way you could get into space. Well, well, I mean, okay. It was easier if you became an American citizen (laughs) to join NASA. Well, that's crap. That shouldn't have been a case, but, well, well. (laughs) But they speak with an English accent, therefore they're British. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> actually, Piers Sellers was actually on that. Do you know the video I was talking about earlier, uh, trying to convince the uh, the politicians to do something about climate change? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He's actually one of the astronauts that uh, features on the video. <laughs> uh, looked down the list and it said, Piers Sellers, USA. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your heart sank. <laughs> But uh, hopefully Tim's going to do some good work up there because his mission, his Principia uh, mission, and I am pronouncing that correct because for ages I've been calling it Principia because that's how it looks like it should be pronounced until I actually heard him say it himself and I was like, 
okay, I've been pronouncing it wrong for the last year. The name itself is actually based around books that were written by Sir Isaac Newton. Hmm. Hence why part of Tim's logo is an apple falling. Nice. <laughs> oh, makes sense. It's, it's really, I do like the logo. Um, it's you, You've got a, a Soyuz rocket going upwards, flying over a map of the UK, a, a slight little bit of the Union Jack on the side, or Union Flag, should I call it? It's only a Union Jack if it's on a ship. Um, we know what you meant. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the apple falling. And, and if you look, you know, like on a, on a red apple, when it's been nicely polished, you get a little reflection in the mm-hmm. on the skin. If you look carefully at the little reflection, it looks like the ISS. There's nice n- touch. N- nice little touch, yeah. And, yeah, his, his entire personal mission is reaching out to kids and teaching them science while he's up there so uh, I hope it inspires a lot of young people I really do um, so it's only a few days away on the, on the 15th so uh, really looking forward to that really looking forward to that I can tell <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's events all around the UK. The Science Museum are doing things. Um, the National Space Centre are doing things. There's things up and down the UK. Um, I'll put uh, links on the on the website of uh, what's going on. The Science Museum are doing things right the way through the school holidays, the Christmas school holidays, um, probably right through to January. A lot of money has been invested in this, and uh, I, I I really do hope that it works and gets kids into into the STEM subjects. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Right, I think it's time we we wrap this uh, show up. We've we've gone on enough today, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll save the Star Wars talk for next time just because the podcast is long enough as it is uh-huh. and we're gonna be the next one. <laughs> Should we just say right now? Spoiler alert for the next episode. Um, we could try and keep it away from being a spoiler show, but I think Good it's going to be inevitab- inevitable that it's <laughs> <laughs> something's going to be said. So probably, um, which reminds me, I've got to get in touch with a guest on the show uh, in January. Have you notified me of any guests as of yet? Uh, I think I've mentioned him to you before. Might have, okay. But we'll leave that as a secret. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. <laughs> um, so if we call it a day then, and it's always a pleasure, sir, to have you on the show. Thank you for putting up with me, sir. So all I will say is, again, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. 
or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can find a link on our podcast pages. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>